I know what you're thinking. They're wearing the same outfits as last week, but that's because we want to be efficient with our time. Pastors, we're recording a number of episodes at one time that we'll release over the course of a handful of weeks. Uh, in the past few weeks, minutes, we've talked about episodes. Episode, there we go. We talked about the self, talking about this inward turn to defining who we are, not using outward structures, but using inward feeling and desires to define. We've talked about expressing those, expressive individualism, where the self, defined inwardly, needs to express outwardly and have people around them that, that can affirm that. Uh, and all of that really is, is by way of definition to get us to a point where we can discuss something called the sexual revolution. Uh, and that's really the reason why Carl Truman wrote his book, Strange New World, is that there is this strange new world that revolves around sex and gender that is strange and new in, in a way that the 70s, 80s, 90s, and even early 2000s were not. And, and one thing that Truman does very, very well is he, he combats a standard Christian impulse that says, well, what's the cause of the sexual revolution? Sin, which we wouldn't necessarily disagree with. We would say that humans defining who they are without God, making decisions about their desires without God, that those things are expressly sinful. But it's, it's overly simplistic to just say sin caused the sexual revolution. Right which is why Carl Truman wrote two books on it, because he wants to take us back to Jean-Jacques Rousseau and through Sigmund Freud, through Charles Darwin, who you'll mention in just a few moments, up to now and say, why is it that we think the way we do about sex? Yeah. More clearly, sex and gender, more clearly, Truman says he writes to answer this question. Why is it when someone says, I am a man trapped in a woman's body, do people largely today say, in the West, largely today say, okay. That's kind of the, he's trying to answer that by describing over the course of hundreds of years, different ways, that different philosophical shifts. Yeah. And if anyone just heard describing over the course of a hundred years, philosophical shifts and just said, tune out, well, one, they're not with us anymore, but two, uh, that's, that's kind of the core of what we're doing here right. is taking enough time to slow down. And instead of just, reacting to a bill that happened in Florida or reacting to a policy about bathrooms or reacting to this and saying, no, bad, I, ah, like there's a certain passion that comes in that, but we want to be what's called dispassionate. Sure. Sit back, not uncaring, but just able to analyze and say, if we want to respond in a way that's good for our churches and good for the people around us, we have to first understand what we're responding to. Yeah. And quite honestly, Chris, right now, most of what we do is react. We see something, it angers or worries us, and we react. And what we seek to do here is to slow down. Yeah, we, we, tap, uh, we tap a button, like, yeah. dislike, like. angry, happy. Right. Yeah. And so what we're doing today is we're, we're going to, one, define and then analyze the term sexual revolution and then respond to it pastorally. How do we respond yeah. to that? Um, so first, Chris, help me define that. Oh, I never finished my thought. Um, Finish Truman, sa <laughs> Truman says... The Christian impulse is to say sin is the cause of the sexual revolution in the same way that it would be uh, silly to say gravity is response, mm. the, responsible for the fall of the Twin Towers. Well, why would we not say gravity is respon responsible for the fall of the Twin Towers? Because we know that there were religious ideologies, there were political um, wars and engagements, there were all different types of factors that led to the fall of the Twin Towers, yeah. and sure, Gravity helped, but but that constant force was not maybe what we would say the cause. Mm -hmm. And so what we want to do is figure out 
in regards to the sexual revolution, what are those other mitigating factors? One, one that you have helpfully brought up, Chris, is the idea of uh, Darwinian theory and how that's shaped how we view sex. Yeah. Elaborate. Yeah, so I think it's easy for us within Christian circles to look at the, um, what we would say are um, out of bounds sexual behaviors and to simply say, those are the actions of perverse individuals who are clearly only thinking with base human drives for sexual gratification, right? It's easy for people to, to look at that and say that it's just people who just want to get dirty. Like that's, that's what the easy way to do it is. But just like we're, we're talking with Truman's, uh, you know, the, the, the gravity and the Twin Towers and that kind of a thing. We want to take this step back and, and think, okay, the majority of people who may identify in a way that is um, unbiblical when it comes to sexual orientation, gender, uh, dysphoria, that type of thing, the majority of these people are not people who simply wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to give in to the most base emotions that I can dig up because I just feel like having sex with so-and-so. There is an atmosphere, there's an environment that exists in which people develop. As if, they're, as if they're Vikings, waking up, right. looking for a town to pillage. Exactly. It's like this evil animal. Sexual conquest, and let's just go yeah. at it. It's easy to look that way. It is, it is. And I, I think it's, it's unhelpful for Christians to look at it in that, in that way. Now, certainly those things happen, but they also happen with people who are heterosexual as well, you know, and, and people go to raves. It just, this, this happens. So when, when we look at what is a cultural environment, and, and really our purpose is to, to look at it, sit back, evaluate, analyze, why are we the way we are? Uh, why do we do the things that we do as a culture? Um, I, I really do believe that um, if, if you go back 170 years, 180 years, and you go back to Charles Darwin, and, and you look at what happened when The Origin of Species was published, um, to be clear, the idea of evolution, special evolution over a long period of time is something that was not new with Charles Darwin. It's something that uh, had been thought of before, had been posited by other thinkers in years past, but uh, Darwin provided a popularization of that, as well as giving some more scientific bases for belief in this theory. And so as Darwin popularized this idea that species evolved out of less advanced forms, and that you can ultimately trace life on planet Earth to a godless origin, that there, that there was no God who created specially, who looked and said, uh, humanity is a unique species I've created in my image. Instead, humanity is just the latest in the progression of a primate species. The popularization of that through the origin of species, it started filtering into all other disciplines and other areas of study uh, in the academy. And you go forward, and I think probably one of the most significant uh, deposits that Darwinian theory had was into the field of psychology. And so psychology, just to, to kind of give some, some backdrop in this, psychology is a relatively recent phenomenon when it comes to uh, a realm of academic study. In fact, psychology became what we would say is the secular response to a Darwinian worldview of a godless world. And yeah, yeah. for me, one more time, psychology became yeah. secular response to what? 
Yeah, to a Darwinian worldview of a godless world. Okay, unpack that for me. I'd be happy to. So when when we're just telling you to do what you're yeah, already going to do, I'd love but it to. makes me feel so forceful. Yes, yes. Use authority. Explain. Please explain. So as 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 we look at what happened with the advent of psychology as a study, as a discipline, as a field, what it really did was it kind of replaced the clerical um, realm. So up to the late 1800s, in Western civilization specifically, you had priests, pastors, rabbis, religious authorities who would stand in a place to provide interpretation of human experience okay. to people. And so communities who would be looking for an understanding why it is people function the way they do would typically go to religious authorities, religious that's figures. That's a good analysis. And so with, with Darwin's theory being accepted within the academy, it created a space that needed to be occupied by individuals who would be able to provide interpretation of human experience who did not depend upon a, a deity to give definition. So you start seeing all of these different figures, these, these uh, you know, we call them fathers of modern psychology enter the, the field. And I think chief among them would be Sigmund Freud, who enters into a space of, of sexualized psychology, where he starts talking about how um, you have a complex, right? Like your, your feelings towards so-and-so are motivated by your sexual repression or your sexual expression at Yeah, a when you say sexualized psychology, you're not, that's not a slander. Correct. Freud himself is talking about how societal norms are meant to primarily be sexually repressive. Yeah. And, and how the, the very liberation of the individual is to express sexually. Yeah. And that's not a slap in the face. That's like... Freud would go, you're right. You're right, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and to put it in terms of one of my favorite shows, uh, Robert California in The Office, one of, his, uh, one of his quotes, everything's about sex. And really, to be clear, the world in which we live, it's what it comes down to. And it's Darwin is the gateway to Freud who defines that. Yes, yes. And so, you know, I, I, I think of so many people, you know, college students that, you know, you might talk to, and, and there's a high percentage of college students who you ask, like, what's your major? psychology. And you ask why? Like why? Well, I'm interested in people, how people work. Mm -hmm. And what psychology has done is it's provided this mechanism for us to evaluate human experience and evaluate how it is people work the, the way that they do. And Freud stands in this place, and, and, and there are certainly other figures that provide differing uh, evaluations of human experience and why people function the way they do. But Freud is, is such a significant figure in psychological theory that he, he really set the tone for looking at human experience through a sexualized lens. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that as, as Darwin, yeah, please. When I used to hear Freud, it sounded to me like he was in the 1100s. No, it's like, we, sure. none of us are reading Freud. None of us are like quoting Freud, really. And so it can very much seem like, that must have been a long time ago, this Freud guy. 150 years ago. Right, and yeah. so, so we, we need to know that 150 years, historically speaking, is not that long of a yeah. time, as far as ideas. Yeah. And so what happens historically is Darwin, and this happens all the time, is followers, pupils, essentially, or, or later contemporaries, take up an idea, mm -hmm. and they expand it, or they explode it, and right. so what happens a lot of times, and happened with Darwin and Freud, is Darwin um, cracks the door, and Freud kicks it open. Yep. Without Darwin cracking the door, Freud couldn't kick it open. Right. But we're at the place we are now because Freud just stomped through the door. Yeah, 
and, and I want to define one thing, and then I have uh, questions for you, Chris, is when we say sexual revolution, we're not saying people are deciding how to have sex with whom right. and following sexual desires. Right. Uh, what we're doing, uh, following Truman's work, is primarily saying that we're now in a culture uh, where there is an elimination of rules about sex. So one of the things, we're trying to be honest here while also being careful with our words, but one of the things Truman will say is that the Greeks were having sex with who they wanted to. Right. But they weren't defining themselves by it, and they weren't necessarily overthrowing rules about it. They were just breaking the rules. Yes. But we now live in a society that is not just about breaking rules, but overthrowing mm -hmm. rules. Did Freud help us get there at all? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's, it's <laughs> as, as each epoch occurs, you have one thinker cracks the door, kicks it open. So I think Darwin kicks something open that hadn't a door been cracked previously through just regular enlightenment thought. You know, so you go back to, well, we can only we can only trust what we can see, touch, taste, whatever. Well, Darwin comes in and says, I have an observable series of, of evolutionary changes with birds and these islands, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, that makes sense because we can see it. Yeah, because the Enlightenment taught us Trust what you can touch. Exactly. And, and don't trust what you can't touch. So, Which eliminates, just to be clear, it eliminates religion. It eliminates yes. God. It eliminates deity because you can't touch God. Yes. Yeah, unless you can point to these definable experiences. And, and you know, as Christians, we would say historically we, we do have a resurrected Jesus that was witnessed by several hundred people. Um, but, you know, that, that just kind of, you know, take that away from most people's perception of religion and and most people's perception of religion is it's an entirely subjective experience. Mm -hmm. You choose what to believe based on what makes you feel good. So enlightenment thinking influences Darwin, Darwin influences Freud, and I think what Freud does is Freud creates a popularized uh, space for people to think through human experience in a certain way that divorces human experience from God altogether. And so where do we get rules about human sexuality? Well, when we talk about the sexual revolution, as, as Truman is talking about it, we're talking about people who have embraced a way of looking at human sexuality that says rules do not exist. And, and there is a, because human sexuality is so intensely personal, unless there is somebody who can authoritatively speak to you and tell you this is what your sexuality is for, how it ought to be used, what it should look like, unless somebody going to authoritatively say that to you, you're free to do as you please. And so there's really just this kind of culmination in the sexual revolution of saying, we are no longer going to allow authority in any capacity, but primarily divine authority. We're not going to let that determine how we express, going back to this idea of expressive individualism, we're not going to let that interfere with how we express what we are personally feeling, and because sexuality is such an intensely personal and emotionally driven thing, it is, it is the sacred cow. And it's a cow. deep desire. Like, right. you talk about quelching or controlling desires, sexual desires are one of the hardest to right. control. Right, exactly. Um, and so, yeah, so this is helpful, Chris, because um, this topic maybe even more than the first two we're starting to talk about guys like Darwin and Freud and their different thinking and enlightenment thinking. And that can seem very removed from the modern day person who's going to go work at Greenheck or is going to go right. work at the university or, you know, is whatever the 
the people that you and I are conversing with on a daily basis. But what we seek to do is to, is to take the different things you're experiencing today, which is um, ideologies like sexual fulfillment is ultimate fulfillment, mm -hmm. and say, where did that come from and is it true? Right. And, and unless we can say where did that come from and is it true, we really can't respond to it with anything other than no. Right. But, but, but that gives us no foundation, one, for security in our own soul, mm -hmm. but also for, for being able to persuade someone else. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we look at something like the sexual revolution, there's an interesting interplay here that Carl Truman points out. He says this, uh, while sex may be presented today as little more than a recreational activity, sexuality is presented as that which lies at the very heart mm -hmm. of what it means to be an authentic person. Right. So think about that. Sex, when you do it, how you do it, with whom you do it, where you do it, like... The biological function. It's, it's recreation. Right. Yet, it's the very core of your being. Mm -hmm. And so we want to be able to step back and say, that just, that's inconsistent. Yep. Sex can't be meaningless and the most meaningful thing in the world. Yep. But when, when we remove our definition of sex and our definition of, of sexual expression from any kind of authoritative structure, mm -hmm. then that's what we're going to get. We're going to get these inconsistent because ultimately when we're following our desires, those are, those are changing and unpredictable. Right. As you were talking, Chris, a couple thoughts came to mind. Um, one is that just in the course of human history, there's this, this trying to figure out what the body is. Mm. Um, and, and, and in that, there's this guy named Epicurus, long, long time ago, right? Uh, Epicurus, he comes up in the Bible in uh, Acts chapter 17, I believe. You have the Stoics and the Epicureans. So the Stoics are the fuddy-duddies. They, they don't believe in pleasure, essentially. They believe in fate. So just figure out what fate has already determined to do and do it well. That's your life. Don't worry about pleasure. Yeah. The Epicureans were the opposite. Mm -hmm. um, it was a pleasure-seeking, right? Right. And so Epicureans might be very similar to a lot of folks today. Is mm -hmm. The chief thing to do is seek pleasure. Um, I was at a, this is a weird story to share, but I was at a funeral recently. Um, and, and people were sharing stories about someone. And they very, uh, maybe not enthusiastically, but kindly described the woman who passed as an Epicurean. She just sought pleasure. She was just authentically herself. Mm. And I thought that, that that piqued my mind, not just because I'm taking Western philosophy and thought right now at Reformed Theological, but because it was positively said. Yeah. And I think that's the point we're at right now is for someone to be a pleasure seeker, regardless of boundaries, is looked at as a very good thing mm -hmm. because they're following their desires. They're following um, their pleasures. What other lines of thought maybe do you think are... are instructive, we've talked about Darwin, we've talked about Epicurus. What other lines of thought do you think are instructive for today as we look at the surrounding sexual revolution? Mm. You know, I, I think there's the, there are popular adages that people use, you know, if it feels good, do it, those types of things that um, people will, will popularly embrace. And Similar to, to, to the experience of the funeral there, saying, well, she was an Epicurean and, you know, applaud yeah. that. Uh, people will likewise applaud the, the idea of you finding maximal fulfillment 
in the pleasure centers of your biological being, right? So um, one of the things I think that, that shows up, and, and this has become kind of a, a common mantra in secular humanist thought, um, ethical, ethical rightness is determined by how many people you injure, right? So for a secular humanist, because there's not necessarily an appeal to an objective standard apart from the, the communal good, if, if a secular humanist is going to communicate sexual ethics, at the heart of the sexual ethic for a secular humanist is the idea that as long as you are causing no harm, you can maximize your pleasure. Now, we see this show up in other areas now of life, like um, we used to call women prostitutes who would sell their bodies for sex. Uh, now there's a, a change in language being used to sex workers. And, and there's significance in this because there's a, there's a cultural That's shift. an elimination of boundaries. Yes, it's an elimination of boundaries, and it's a cultural shift into the territory of saying, Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's take a look at these women. Are they harming anybody? Well, if they're, if they're clean of, of STDs and they're, they're benefiting financially and the men or women that choose to go and have intimate encounters with these individuals are finding pleasure, nobody's being injured unless they want to be injured in some instances, then it's fine. It's okay. And, and this, this really kind of boils down the whole ethic of secular humanism to if you're not hurting anybody, it's okay. It's okay. And so this feeds into the sexual revolution that we're experiencing today because what we're ultimately doing is saying in order for you to do right as a, as a person, to do ethical right things, here is your, you know, we, we, we talk about the golden rule, right? I mean, it's the people have for centuries used the golden rule, do unto others as you have them do unto you. And so the secular humanist would, would kind of adopt that and adapt it to say, um, do unto others in such a way that you do no harm while gaining most benefit and pleasure because that's the mark of whether or not something is acceptable pursuit. So when it comes to sex, the whole thing kind of comes down to do as you please, be pleased with what you please, as long as you are not displeasing somebody else, and you are right in that process. Well, and what that, what that, uh, we talked earlier about how Darwin eliminated deity and authority from this discussion, and it once again makes Chris or Josh the sole determiner of what harm is or mm -hmm. what's harming another person. Right. And, the, and the reality is, is we often don't know what's harmful until we've been harmed. Sure. Like, we, we don't know what's harmful to eat until our body reacts to it. We don't mm -hmm. know what's harmful in a relationship until we've done three or four of the relationships wrong, and we realize, right. oh, me acting that way was harmful. Right. But when we take up the sole authority of determining what's good to do with our bodies, what we're doing is we're assuming that we are wise enough to determine for ourselves what's good. And, and the problem with that, Chris, is that take something like pornography, which um, many, many people today would argue that pornography is not immoral because people are choosing to engage right. in the video making and people are choosing to engage in the watching and the pleasure seeking. 
But the reality is both of those individuals are, are being caused great harm. I mean, I'll just be honest, as someone who was addicted to pornography for a decade, I, I didn't know until after the fact how much damage that caused to me emotionally sure. and mentally. Yep. Um, people that engage in pornography then end up causing damage to their future spouses, uh, even though maybe they're now removed from mm -hmm. that. Uh, there's untold damage to particularly women in that industry, sure. which is probably the most sinister underlying fact here, Chris, is that uh, typically, historically, the elimination of sexual boundaries hurts one gender. Sure. It hurts women. Yeah. One of the reasons women were drawn, drawn to Christianity in the early church is because there, was, uh, there were sexual codes and there were, were protections against in infanticide yep. and they were dignified. And so it's like, good, this Christ is valuing me and protecting yeah. me. Um, I, read, I read a very, very interesting article in the, I think it was in the New York Times recently where people were lamenting the fact that they had pursued sexual pleasure and it had been dissatisfying. Mm. But they were doing this from a secular point of view to sure. say, hey, we were told that we're gonna pursue this and it's gonna be good, but it turns out when you just pursue sexual desires in any which way you want, the person actually doesn't care about you. Um, the person actually, like, there's no reason for them to think of anyone but themselves because you just have two people selfishly pursuing sexual desires as opposed to a Christian worldview, which would view sex as, as two people giving of right. themselves rather than taking for themselves. Right. And so you have these people, and I just thought it was heartbreaking and interesting to hear mostly women mm. describe the longings and the holes that they had in their hearts because they had pursued sexual pleasure, but they hadn't been cared for, they hadn't been satisfied, right. and it was because they had taken up the mantle of authority to determine what's good. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens, and, and I, I want to emphasize once again, I, I do think when sexual boundaries are eliminated, women get hurt more than men. Yeah, agreed. Which is why we want to be clear in this conversation that God is good in giving us sexual boundaries. Mm -hmm. God is good in giving us marriage structures in which sex takes place because um, God cares for women. Uh, God cares for men and the different psychological things that mm -hmm. happen or even just the... Um, you know, men can tend towards a, a type of selfishness that takes from others rather right. than giving to others. And, and if you tell a man to have sex with whoever he wants, that breeds right into that self-centered yeah. nature. And uh, so when we remove the authority structure, it's not just, we're free. Mm -hmm. Like finally we're free. It's actually, we're now captive to our own, we're captive to our own autonomy in the way that we're gonna be telling ourselves that we can figure out what's good to do with our bodies and we're gonna harm ourselves mm -hmm. while we're doing that and we're gonna harm others um, all in the pursuit of pleasure. So I think that's, I mean, we could, we could go a thousand other directions with the sexual revolution here, but, but really it's an elimination of boundaries and it's, it's the person determining what's good. Chris, can you, be, before we head out, yeah. can you tell me how this infiltrates the church or how this infiltrates community? Yeah, I mean, sadly, it infiltrates the church because professing Christians are liable to fall into the same sinful patterns as non-Christian people. I mean, and it's just a reality. The reality is that there are Christian people who will pursue because the, the draw of pleasure is so strong. It, it can be one of those things that can really capture somebody's heart. And it is a heart capture. It's, it's not just a physical capture. And I think as as a Christian, you recognize that you are not just biology. You are not just a, a body. You're not just a body that has feelings, that has emotions that are, that are 
biologically, evolutionarily driven, but instead that you are a, a human being. You have a soul. And so as you experience these things, it's, there's a captivity that takes place because you're giving of yourself in a certain way that you don't really even understand the significance of, of what you're giving. So I think just right off the bat, the, the reality is that sexual sin happens and it occurs within the lives of Christians. And, and it's something that, um, you know, interestingly enough, it is the only sin that's spoken of, sexual sin, where, where God in his word says that when you sin sexually, you're sinning against yourself. I, I was going to use that exact terminology because of, of the topic of self. Is mm. When you sin with, with your body, you're not just potentially causing a disease or a right. pregnancy or a bodily issue. You're sinning against your very self. Yes. Which anyone who has, um, yeah, anyone who's experienced any form of extramarital sexual engagement mm. will know that there's like there's a part of you with that person that you've slept with right. or with the video that you've watched. It's taken something from you, and there's a shame that I mean that you've really caused harm to yourself, right. which is why the sexual revolution wants to eliminate shame. Right. Because if we can eliminate shame, we can don't think about the harm. It was just for pleasure. I think one other th way that this infiltrates the church, Chris, is is particularly to, um, I think maybe particular to single individuals or individuals who are were married and are not anymore, is this idea that sex is still the most fulfilling thing you can do. Um, because that's what Freud is telling us, is that sure. to be human, to have an ego, is to, to be a sexual being mm -hmm. and to be human is to fulfill that sexual desire, and right. any structures repressing that sexual desire are really repressing your humanity. So you got to fulfill it. Your singleness is yeah. a, is a is an oppressive boundary, basically. If I could speak candidly, yeah. If to be a sexual being is to be a human, I am not very often a, a human. It's a very small component of my life, right. isn't it? Yep. And that's not to demean what God-given sex is. Is it's a good gift from the Lord. Yeah. But even just in my marriage, it's a very small component of my marriage. Right. There's much, much more of my marriage that has to do with self-sacrificing or emotional care or any mm -hmm. type of thing that is not physical or sexual fulfillment. And so I think the lie that someone who is single or someone who's divorced maybe is captive to hear from the culture is that if you're not having sex, you're not being fulfilled. Right. Well, one, for the Christian, Jesus never had sex. The, the pinnacle of humanity, Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the one who, who is now you know, at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Like, he didn't have sex. Right. And that, so that means if you're not sexually fulfilled, that doesn't mean you're not a human. Mm -hmm. Because back to our first episode about self, God defines what being human right. is. And God says to be human is to be made in the image of God. And Jesus was made in the image of God, but he didn't have sex. And so I think that that's got to be a call, and maybe even to the married person who is not satisfied with their sex life. That doesn't mean you're not fully authentically mm -hmm. human. The culture, Freud, tells you that. It's just not true. Yeah. So I would, I would end with maybe that's how it can kind of creep into the church as well. Uh, mm -hmm. I think we've gone long enough. Um, I'm sure we'll touch back as we discuss some of these topics in future episodes. We'll touch back on this idea of the sexual revolution. Uh, hope that was helpful for you all.